My name is Lise Doucette. I'm the BBC's Chief International Correspondent, and I'm here to speak about reporting from extreme environments. What are the extreme environments of our time? Well, in them, I would include some of the places where I spend some of my times, the war zones, the areas of conflict. And among them, perhaps the worst of all, is the war in Syria, now approaching its sixth year. But in looking at extreme environments, I also want to be guided by the spirit of Charles Darwin to look at what he called a struggle to survive. Because it's been my experience in that in living in extreme environments, people find ways to survive and they show extraordinary courage as well as commitment and compassion to find the light in the dark, to find ways to live. So good evening and welcome to the final lecture in the 2017 Darwin College series on extremes. Our lecturers this year have taken us from extremes of climate, politics, economics, human endurance and, lo and longevity to the universe itself. Tonight we turn to effectively news. Now news is fundamental to any democracy. Wise decisions can only be made by a well-informed public. We must see with clear eyes there is good and bad to be discovered. The extremes hold dangers and the center is always at risk. Attila was there targeting Rome. Hitler seduced the angry and the gullible. Read, mark, learn and inwardly digest. Accurate news from extremes must be heard and understood. And in today's confusing world of alternative facts and alt-truths, the honest news gatherer is essential to the well-being of our societies. Long ago, in almost, almost forgotten years, when small earthquake in Chile, not much damage, had been replaced as the all-purpose filler on snow, slow news days by worthwhile Canadian initiative at the UN some interest, I lived in a small happy city in the prairies in Canada. And we listened to As It Happens on CBC Radio, one of the jewels of Canada's democracy. From the hotspots of Africa, and then from Pakistan and, and Afghanistan, there came the honest voice of a young woman with a familiar Acadian accent, as Canadian as she could possibly be. It was almost as if Anne of Green Gables had left her peaceable Presbyterian village <laughs> to trek from unrest to unrest, tragedy to tragedy, danger to danger. I suspect there were plenty admiring her courage and not a few saying prayers for her safety. That was Lise Doucette's voice, who today is chief international correspondent of the BBC. She is one of those on whom we most depend to frame an accurate view of the extreme situations around the world. Someone who shapes our understanding and thinking, and that's a fearsome burden. So I'm delighted to welcome her tonight to speak on reporting from extreme environments. Thank you.
Wow, Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> I have really arrived. I actually feel that I don't, it doesn't even matter whether this lecture goes well or not. I just, just, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much for your kind introduction. And most of all, thank you to Darwin College for asking me to be one of your, well, your series of distinguished speakers at this distinguished university. And thank you to all of you, all of you here in this hall, all of you who are watching outside, listening outside. Here it is, a, a balmy <coughs> evening in the beautiful city of Cambridge and a hint of spring in the air. And you could be doing so many other things tonight with your time. <laughs> and you know, instead you're coming to hear about extreme environments and I'm very, very, in fact, I'm extremely grateful. And I have to say that the college is no doubt extremely grateful that I made it here tonight instead of being whisked away to report on, on some disaster. And it is up to me, just a journalist, to have the last word in this extraordinary series. Hashtag, no pressure. <laughs> and so tonight we're going to look at extreme environments. Environments of extreme destruction and danger, war zones, a profound loss and sadness. Places which are cold and dark, where even to survive is a battle. Tonight, for just a moment, I'm going to take you to some of these extreme environments that I've witnessed in my reporting. I'm not going to show you the worst of the images. We don't broadcast the worst of the images. And I even wondered tonight, I kept thinking, should I share this scene, this terrible thing, this extreme environment? And I thought, well, some of you will have already seen them when they were broadcast. And besides, they are stories of our time. They are happening on our time and on our watch. And in fact, they are stories which happen again and again. So much so that we begin to wonder, are these extreme environments? In fact, we don't want to use the word normal. Have they become the usual state of affairs. They are extremes which are happening far from us, but actually not. They are extremes which are so close, you can watch them on your telephone. So where to begin? Well, at the beginning, where all stories begin. Once upon a time, not so long ago, in fact, it was quite a long time ago, in the 19th century, there was a man, a biologist named Charles Darwin. And what does he have to say to someone like me? Not a scientist, not a biologist, a journalist. A journalist who has the privilege of traveling to memorable countries at momentous times, of being in places where kind people open up their hearts and their homes. 
places where history is still lived, not something which has been left behind. And where daily life can be hard, hard to survive. Heartbreaking at times and occasionally horrific. Now, Charles Darwin's most famous quote, at least for unscientific types of people like me, was, you know it, what is it? Do I hear a little S? Right, survival of the fittest. But when I went to look it up, I found out it wasn't his quote at all. Hashtag fake news. <laughs> Alternative facts. Listen, this is the Darwin series at Darwin College. We cannot give Charles Darwin a bad name. <laughs> to his credit, he acknowledged it wasn't his phrase. It belonged to a philosopher, a certain Herbert Spencer. But Darwin himself spoke of a struggle for existence, a struggle for life. And his, of course, is a historic sweep, millennia of, evolu millennia of evolution, the survival of the species, still debated and dissected to this day. The task of my profession, journalism, is of course far smaller, far less significant. But I wanted to approach this lecture tonight with, let me say, a little bit of Darwin's guiding spirit. Because to speak about reporting from extreme environments is in essence also finding out how people survive. About this Darwinian struggle for life. Because extreme environments call on everyone, men, women, children, to do whatever it takes to survive. And in too many places, too many people don't survive. But time and again, the places where I have been, some of the most extreme environments of our time, I find that people do carry on. And they find something within themselves, the force to carry on. Even in the worst of places, you find life, you hear laughter, you see light and hope. Hope, humor, and at times even acts of heroism, they are the weapons people use in extreme times to survive. And they are extremely important or not, because survival, a profound sense of threat, also pushes people to do extreme things, terrible things, unspeakable acts, unthinkable violence, cruelty. Extreme environments can be man-made and sometimes they are created by forces beyond our control, by weather, by other forces.
and sometimes they're exacerbated by what we as humans do. And I'm sure all of you tonight, when you came to a lecture on extreme environments, you all had an image in your mind of what for you is an extreme environment. So indulge me for a moment. You know, as a TV and radio broadcaster, you know, I stand somewhere in places in the dark of night and it seems like the middle of nowhere, and you look out into the eye of the camera and you wonder who's listening, who's watching. And believe me, sometimes you hope nobody is listening or watching. But because I can see all of you tonight, tell me what you think of. Just shout, what do you think of when you think of extreme? What place? What kind of extremity? Syria. Syria. Aleppo. Aleppo. Volcanoes. Volcanoes. Explosions. Hmm? Pools. Exactly. Exactly. Maybe you think of Syria, Aleppo, the Poles. Perhaps you think of Yemen, pushed to the brink of starvation by a devastating war. Or of northern Nigeria, southern Sudan, Somalia, all places right now where aid agencies warn millions are on the brink of starvation. Maybe you think of extreme weather, the devastating aftermath of earthquakes, floods, tsunamis the Indian Ocean tsunami of 2004, the worst ever tsunami. I stood in a place like that and I wondered, how do people carry on after this? How do you go on when everything and often everybody that you held dear is gone, vanished in seconds? How do you survive that? Maybe you think of extreme violence. And in our time, a group regarded as the most extremist of all, the so-called Islamic State, or Daesh. Or maybe you think of something different. Maybe you think of places not far from where we sit tonight. Maybe you think of grinding poverty, even here in the city of Cambridge. Maybe you think of homelessness on the streets of Britain. Extreme environments can also be very small, but still very significant. Extreme places can be very personal, but very painful. And of course, let us not forget that there can be extreme environments of extreme happiness. And then, I, ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> I think we would all say we would love to be extremists. So all of you have thought about or lived within environments, places and times you would call extreme, and they all matter. I come here before you tonight, not as an academic with a huge body of decades of research, or some world-class author who's come up with a brilliant theory about how the world works or doesn't work. I'm just a journalist, and what we do is we tell stories. So tonight, I'm going to tell you some simple human stories, because it has been my experience that sometimes the small stories have the power to tell you something much bigger about a much bigger story. And in our time 
I would sadly like to say that there are not many stories much bigger than the war. Whoops. Whoops. In Syria. Only God is perfect, as we say in the Middle East. Six years ago next week, Syria began its descent into a deep black hole. It fell so far and it fell so fast and nobody, nobody expected it. Six years ago, Syria was a middle income Arab country, a country which could feed itself, produced all its own pharmaceuticals, was famous for some of the best food in the Middle East, some of the most beautiful and precious heritage sites, but also infamous for its authoritarian regime, for being a place of no political freedom, little freedom of expression, which is why six years ago next week, many Syrians rose up asking for political change, asking for reform and openness. It was, as many of you will know, one of the last countries to rise up at what was at that time known, and perhaps too romantically, as the Arab Spring. Six years on, it is known for this and this. More than half of Syria's pre-war population of 22 million is now a refugee outside of Syria, forcibly display, displaced inside Syria, or dead. Tonight is not a time for me to analyze the evolution of this six years, to discuss in detail what could have been done to stop it, what could be done now to end it. But in the spirit of this Darwin series, I want to look at what has been, what has become in six short years, an extreme environment in all too many ways. And how is it described? I have never seen a war so cruel in all my life, says Stefan de Mastura, the UN special envoy I met 30 years ago while covering another cruel war in Afghanistan. He holds in his hands the book of the dead. The UN stopped counting the dead and the injured in Syria many years ago. It said it couldn't keep, keep track of it. It wasn't sure if the sources were accurate. But Syrians are still counting. I have never seen such acts of torture, even in the Balkan conflict, lamented Carla Del Ponte, the former chief prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. There are no good or bad ones, she said last month. They are all bad. Government forces and rebels are both committing war crimes, as serious and incredible as each other, is what she said when the UN launched its inquiry into what happened in the last stages of the absolutely ferocious battle of the city for Aleppo last year. And Aleppo, somebody mentioned it. 
a city so iconic, Shakespeare mentioned it twice, in Macbeth, in Othello. A culture so iconic, it has its own genre of Aleppo music, its own kind of cuisine. It took 4,000 years to build Aleppo, says the Norwegian humanitarian Jan Eglund. 4,000 years, hundreds of generations. But one generation tore it apart in just one year. War is always cruel. But even by this standard, the war in Syria is the mother of all wars, a catalogue of war crimes and crimes against humanity. Let's look at one, one part of this catalogue. It's called the siege. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians, and sometimes millions, one or other point of the war, have been living in what are described as besieged or hard to reach areas. That means that armed groups surround their towns or villages and they stop all food and medicine, essential supplies for life from going in. And they stop people desperate to escape to get medical attention from going out. It's a tactic mainly used by the Syrian government forces but there are towns which have also been besieged, encircled by the Syrian opposition, including the most extreme group of all, the so-called Islamic State. In military terms, the tactic is called surrender or starve. And it's been used with devastating effect time and time again in Syria, especially when it's combined with constant shelling and bombardment. A living hell. It's hard to report on sieges because journalists also can't get inside. Now, as many of you will know here, often opposition activists or people living inside, they upload their gut-wrenching videos onto the internet or they send out heartbreaking testimonies. But in all of these wars, there's also a battle for truth. And so there's a counter-narrative. So once in the past six years of covering this war, this, this conflict, after lobbying hard for all of the permissions, I and my team were finally allowed to enter, along with the UN, one of these besieged areas. To a place just south of Damascus called Yarmouk. Now decades ago, Yarmouk had become a refuge for Palestinians fleeing an earlier Arab-Israeli war. And for Syrians, Yarmouk grew into the most vibrant neighborhood of Damascus, a place for shopping, for dining, for late night coffees. Yarmouk was, a friend told me who used to live there, a place where there was everything to make you smile. And now, no more. Let me, for a moment, just take you to Yarmouk. It could be the scene of a natural disaster, but this is man-made. Not much is left in Yarmouk. But this tide of people. Armed men struggled to contain the crowds, but they couldn't hold back. 
the emotion. Just look at the faces. They tell the story of Yarmouk, a people, thousands of people living under siege for months upon months without access to enough food or medical assistance. Absolutely desperate. Desperate for help. Desperate to get out. I'm so tired, so tired, this woman cries. Another woman stops us, pleading. Please, please, take us out. We're dying here. And the shelling hasn't stopped. A fragile truce has allowed the UN to finally gain access, but it still has to tread carefully negotiating between rebel fighters, government troops, and Palestinian factions. Every day is a battle just to get any aid in. And we will not forget you. The whole world will not forget you. We are here. The head of the UN's Palestinian refugee agency made his first trip today since the siege took hold last July. But for everybody, we will not forget you. We promise you. I've been speaking to the people here. They've been deprived of everything for too long and it is not a day too late that we're able to do this. But only a tiny amount of food, 60 parcels, were distributed today. More than 20,000 people are struggling to survive here. Most of them couldn't even reach this distribution point. Yarmouk was once a refuge for Palestinians fleeing the 1948 Arab-Israeli war. Now it's a prison. People are frantic to escape. Very few do. This man somehow managed to get inside Yarmouk to rescue his daughter. They haven't seen each other for a year. We've been living with hunger and humiliation, she tells me. But where should we go now? This is our home. 13-year-old Kifa tries to put on a brave face. Everything was normal here, he begins. And then admits, there was no bread. It was all too much. It's like that for everyone here. Lise Doucette, BBC News, Yarmouk. Bread. Would you ever have thought that bread could be extreme? and that a boy would cry for bread. Kifa and his pregnant mother and his two sisters made it out of Yarmouk that day. Their father still had to stay inside. And then last year, Kifa wanted to go and visit his father, as any child would, and now he's trapped inside again. And what of Yarmouk? Politically, it's the gateway to Damascus, all right, on the edge of the capital. So everyone with guns, does whatever it can to hold on to what it has of Yarmouk. Most of all, President Assad's forces, which control the capital, the seat of power. Now, I could have told you a very complicated and a very complex story about the politics of Yarmouk, about all the different groups that fight there, including Palestinian factions. I could talk to you about the Syrian army, which encircles Yarmouk with checkpoints, and now, since we went to Yarmouk a few years ago, the so-called Islamic State, which also has a presence there. But I've, instead, I've chosen to focus 
on the human side of this story. Because in reporting on extreme environments, I've always found that the best way to try to understand it, to try to relate to what is happening, is to see it as a human story, a story that everyone can understand, a story about mothers and fathers and families and neighbors and societies. How do we define extreme? Well, I looked it up in the dictionary, of course, the Cambridge Dictionary. And it said, of course, that the adjective extreme, as we already heard, is described as the furthest point from the center. What is our center in the 21st century? Home, family, food, school, safety, happiness? Probably the same center for people who have lived one century after the other. What is different about our society is that we live in a century where we should, in fact, have the means to ensure that everyone is able to live at this center. There's an array of international aid agencies working around the world. There are now human rights tribunals. There is now a very strong body of international humanitarian law and social media, which means no one, no one can say, I don't know what was happening. And yet, when we live in the best of times, we live in the worst of times. And for those who live in such extreme environments, life is but a search, a struggle to hold on, to reach back to what all of us here tonight, everyone, would describe as the center. Let me tell you another story about Yarmouk. Like bread, it's a story that everyone here can understand. It's about school and about exams. And in this case, about ninth graders studying for very important exams. Except in Yarmouk, it's not so easy. The year we reported on this story, it took months of negotiations between the warring sides to allow about 120 young boys and girls to walk through the war zone, board special buses, be taken to a special place supervised by the United Nations outside of Yarmouk to sit the Syrian national exams. Now, everyone here knows what it's like to study for exams. Long hours, long nights. Maybe some of you weren't really the studying kind, okay? Maybe your children aren't. What about these schoolboys? Look at them. In the middle, there's Mohammed with his gaunt frame and his piercing green eyes. I have to write my exams, he insisted to me. If I don't, I'll lose a year of school. Mohammed has already lost too much. He told me a story about a, a rocket had hit his house when he was at school, and it killed his mother and his two young sisters, and it wounded two others. Next to him, holding his revision papers, is Khalid, 50 years old. Look at him. He's got that cocky stance of a street fighter and the vulnerable gaze of a child. 
you ever get scared, Hollett? I asked him. And this is what he said. We walk to school every day when there is school with our hand on our heart because so many people have died. I am scared, he admitted. But if we lose our education, we lose our future. And then no one can help us. The boys told me they studied by the sun by day and by night by candlelight. In Yarmouk, there was no electricity. But it's hard, hard. Because as Khalid says, you need brain food to make your brain work. Then what did they eat? Their answer is the same one we heard time and time again. When we stood, not able to enter, on the edge of this besieged area and watched people desperately fleeing the area as part of a humanitarian pause negotiated by the aid agencies or part of a military agreement, reconciliation or surrender by the, between the warring sides. And what would people say when we asked, what did you eat? Grass. We largely ate grass. And that is what Khalid talked about, and Mohammed and the rest of the boys. Grass boiled with a bit of water, some rice if they'd had it, maybe some spices. The first time I heard that, I thought, what? Grass? And when I heard it again and again, it is. You, people go and take the grass, or they take the greens from the gardens that they start to grow because there's nothing else to eat. So these boys spent two weeks in Damascus preparing and writing their exams, and then most of them went back inside Yarmouk <laughs> to be with their families, as hard as that is. And three days ago, I spoke to a friend in Damascus, and I asked about Kifa, the little boy you saw who cried for bread. And he's now in the ninth grade, and he's preparing to write his exams. So like them, he'll also come out to sit his exams and then go back in. Life, you call it that, does go on. But what has really struck me in reporting on these extreme environments for so many years is the courage, the courage of people under fire. And most of all, I have to say, the courage of children. Visit after visit to Syria, I came out, and in thinking about what had marked me the most, I always remembered some child who had said something or did something. So much so that I went to the BBC and I said, we must do something. Just a story from below, talking to the children. Because they are living through an ordeal nobody should have to go through. Especially not the most youngest and the most innocent. Not only are they living through these moments, they know how to articulate them. And that is what led to a documentary some of you have, may have seen. We did on the children of Syria and then the children of the Gaza war, both Israelis and Palestinians. And that idea came for me after I met, in particular, one Syrian boy. I don't remember his name, but I will never forget what he said. We had gone to visit a neighborhood in Damascus called Barzay. And the soldiers at the checkpoint said, you can't go any further. And besides, there's no point. Everything inside is fine. And so I wandered a little bit casually down the road as far as I could without attracting their attention. 
And a young boy, he must have been about 10 or 11, hurried by with his mother with his shopping. <coughs> and I stopped him and I said, Shuapa, Kifwata. And the woman replied, well, how are things? And I replied, tamam, kulu tamam, everything is, everything is okay. And the little boy looked at his mother and he said, mama, mama, tell her the truth. Tell her what's happening. Tell her the helicopters are in the sky and they're bombing us every day. Mama, tell her we want it to stop. And then they hurried away and the soldiers told me to come back. And there was another girl. Her name, she didn't want to give her real name, but we called her Rhonda. She was 12, going on 13 when I met her. Now she must be about 17. We met as the war was beginning. Beginning and at a time when nobody thought it would last so long and would cost so much. We met in what was described as a child-friendly space run by a charity called War Child. And there's a British, uh, there's a British uh, group, um, friend, part of uh, the, the worldwide network of World Child. And we met in the northern Lebanese city of Tripoli. And when I met Randa, she told me of the day in the Syrian city of Homs, where she was playing in the streets with her friend Hulud. And they could hear the sounds of gunfire ricocheting around them. And then there was an attack. And 12-year-old Rhonda, with all of the precise detail that children of that age like to use, told me about how a bullet hit her best friend Hulud and how the bullet went through this side of the cheek and came out the other. And Hulud died in a pool of blood. In Arabic, Hulud means eternity. But Hulud died at the age of 12, just like Rhonda. And then a short time afterwards, a mortar hit Rhonda's house in Holmes, and a wall fell inside, but no one was killed. Alhamdulillah, her mother said, Rhonda told me, we all have survived. God is great, but it's too dangerous for us. We must leave. And Rhonda told me this story. And I said, Rhonda, you're only 12 years old and you're so brave. What do you want to do when you grow up? And without a moment's hesitation, she said, when I grow up, I want to be a lawyer to get people out of prison. And then I went on to ask my final question, but my mind was lingering on the answer to the last, thinking, why would a girl of 12 speak with such precision about prison. And I said, Rhonda, what did you mean about wanting to be a lawyer when you grow up who gets people out of prison? And with the voice of a child, but of wisdom beyond her years, she told me, my two brothers went to prison and when they came out, they couldn't walk. The story of a child, the story of a child growing up in a war, an extreme war of our time. Targeting civilians in war is a war crime, one of the most serious
breaches of international humanitarian law. Serious war, and it's not just serious war, but in serious war, civilians, women, children, are not just on the front line, they are the front line. And how to report on this? Well, when I go and ask Syrian government officials about besieged areas, about abuses, they deny there is starvation, just often five miles from where I speak to them in Damascus. They say that food is getting in. They say it's the opposition groups, the terrorists, who are starving people, keep, keeping them hostage, denying them and hoarding the food. And when you ask the opposition, they blame the government, the regime, accusing it of besieging the areas and of bombarding it with their ferocious air power and artillery, pummeling fighters and their families into submission. Ask the people, often they can't tell you the truth, so afraid are they of the consequences. And sometimes, as a journalist, it's hard to ask. Take Aleppo. We were there in December, in West Aleppo, during the worst of the fighting for the city. We're pleased for a humanitarian pause, a ceasefire to allow food and medicine to go into besieged East Aleppo, to bring the wounded out, were ignored. So tens of thousands of people fled wherever they could, however they could, in the dark of night, under fire. And we would go to areas where a tide of people were fleeing, fleeing from the besieged area of East Aleppo, under siege for months, into the relative safety of West Aleppo. And we'd meet the people who are fleeing, exhausted men and women, elderly men and women strapped into rickety wheelchairs or onto metal vegetable carts, children trailing behind, carrying whatever they could carry. And to the women who traveled alone without their husband, with too many children, we would ask, where is your husband? And one woman sitting on a heap of dirt-covered bags, all of the worldly goods they could carry, bursting at the seams with her sister and their children, looked at her sister when my, the question came from a journalist and said, what should I say? Mubarak, I don't know. What was her story? Was it that her husband was a rebel fighter and she didn't want anyone to know? Was it that her husband had been killed by the rebels as he tried to flee? And that was also hard to say. Was it that her husband had stayed behind because he feared being arrested when he came into a government-held area? Sometimes it's hard to be the journalist asking questions. Sometimes you don't want to ask them. But in my profession, we have a saying, and that is that the truth eventually emerges. And when it does, what will be the consequences? Who will be held accountable? And what, if any, will there be when it comes to justice? Syria's story, its extreme environment, is a story of sieges, but it's also a story, and I'm afraid to talk, I'm sorry, I have to talk about it tonight, of horrific massacres. If you go to Wikipedia, the People's Online Encyclopedia, and put in Syria massacres, you'll discover that there was a massacre almost every month for years. 
a massacre in the sense of a killing of a large number of people in horrific circumstances at one time. And like sieges, it's very hard for journalists to be there at the time, in the place, to find out what happened. We did see one, for better or worse, outside the city of Homs in the village of Hasuya. Reports were coming out, and we read them, we heard them, that more than 100 people had been slaughtered in cold blood. We, haven't, we didn't broadcast the worst of the images, but this report tells you a bit of what we saw when we turned up in Hasuya and asked what has happened. The army took us in. The village of Hasuya is just around the corner from their base. As we enter the village, some of the men who survived are on the street. There's a powerful sense of shock. But one woman starts telling her story as soon as she sees us. They stormed into my house, she told me. They slapped my face. I fell on the floor. They beat and stripped me and my daughters. Most of the killings took place in houses down this hill. The army tells us they've cleared the area, taken away the bodies. But they say it's not safe for us to go further. We persuade them to let us take another route. In the first house they take us to, in the middle of a gutted kitchen, we see a charred body. There's a bullet hole in the centre of the forehead. Then we spot another house next door, and the full horror emerges. There's blood on the, on the cement and a body is straddling the doorway and one sprawled in the yard in positions which suggest they were trying to flee. These people have been shot and burnt. The bottle of fuel is still there. Oh. Further inside this compound, another grim discovery. A trail of blood from the kitchen. At least two people seem to have been killed here, their bodies dragged away. The floor is still littered with bullet casings. And around the back, even more bodies. A woman, completely charred in her bed. The soldier with us says hundreds of men came across the fields. He says they were from the Islamist group, the Nusra Front. Sunni extremists. But this is a, um, it's a Sunni village. Uh, people worry this is part of sectarian violence, Alawi against Sunni. They're not just Sunnis, and these villagers support the government. Others in the village gave us the same account in front of the soldiers who surround us. One person managed to speak to us off camera, out of their earshot. She told us the army was there that day that some had apologized, saying others were acting without orders. That version seems to tally with what activists say, that this was the work of pro-government militia known as Shabiha. Someday, we'll know for certain who did this. A war crime happened here. Lise Doucette, BBC News, Hasuya.
a war crime in a kitchen. The teacups were still lined up. In the kitchen, there was a pot in the oven. The clothing was hanging on the line. Someone came to that house, that compound, and burnt everyone alive. And after that trip, we tried, without complete success, to find out more about what really happened. But in the 30 years of covering conflicts, I have found that Syria is one of the most difficult places to find out the truth. Now let me just So we asked an expert, a forensic pathologist, to look at what we'd found, why people would commit such savagery. And the expert, the forensic pathologist we consulted, said this was a brazen act of impunity, cold, calculated. Bodies were left where they died. Nobody cared that we found them. The house was burnt. Nobody cared that the flames could be seen miles around. And Hasuya is just one in a catalogue of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And many brave Syrians have been collecting data, smuggling out the evidence for war crimes tribunals, which will happen someday, maybe. Many, many people, most of all Syrians, are looking for answers. But most of all, more than anything else, Syrians want this war to end. Most of all, while it's still going on, they want to survive. And to hope that something, a country called Syria, also survives. But Syria is extreme in more ways than one. Syria is many wars within the wars. Six years on, it is a brutal civil war and a sectarian conflict, but it's also a regional proxy war with all of the main powerhouses from Saudi Arabia to Iran to neighbors like Jordan and Turkey. And it's also what we call a new Cold War, which draws in Moscow and Washington. And now, in the last few years, it became part of the so-called caliphate of the so-called Islamic State. Syria has stopped being just about Syria. Foreign powers with their own ish interests keep the war going. So do the warring sides, still unwilling and perhaps unable after all that has happened to share power. In the past six years, the momentum has constantly shifted. Between the opposition forces backed by the United States, the United Kingdom, an array of Arab states, and President Assad's forces and his allies, most of all Russia and Iran. And the war has told both sides that it was President Assad who had the most loyal and the most powerful friends of all. So much so that six years on, and in particular, after the battle ended for the city of Aleppo, the momentum has clearly shifted 
to the government side. The opposition is increasingly dominated by radical jihadi groups. And for many outside powers, including the West, the war which matters most of all in Syria now is the war against so-called Islamic State or Daesh. And in the middle, in the center, the majority of Syrians, the families who just want this war to stop. And the many young Syrians who rose up six years ago with their slogans and placards and chanting, calling for democracy, for political reform. Many of them still fight on in civil society, but many are starting to ask whether they should give up. Syria is too, not a horrible war way out there. It's become our war too. Look at British society. Look at the brave British surgeons who have risked their lives to go and perform operations in makeshift hospitals in Syria. The committed British chefs who've cooked extraordinary meals to raise money for Syria. The former British students who studied Arabic in Damascus, who started suppers for Syria and have raised hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. And many people, including many of you here today, who give money, read articles, go to marches, all about Syria, so far away. But it's not just solidarity which crosses borders, threats do too. The people called, gone to fight with the so-called Islamic State, have left Britain and many other countries in the West. The ones who will come back and the ones who are still here. We've already seen the consequences, the attacks in Brussels, in Paris, in Nice, in many other cities. The kind of attacks, fortunately, we haven't seen in Britain and may we never will. But people also cross borders, many of them not dangerous, just desperate. So much so that the world now struggles to respond to the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War. And of that community who crosses borders, many of them fleeing for their lives, many of them just wanting a better life, the biggest number of all is Syria. It's what the United Nations calls the humanitarian test of its time. And every country and every government has to make its own decisions for its own people about how many refugees it wants to let in, how many migrants it has jobs for, how worried it is about the risks that are possibly posed by a very small number of people fleeing Iraq and Syria in the name of the so-called Islamic State. My country, Canada, blessed with a huge land mass and relatively small population, a country with a history of immigration, where migration is one of the main engines of economic growth, has so far welcomed some more than 30,000 Syrian refugees in the space of a few months. And many of the refugees are sponsored by private Canadians. So as we come to the end of this lecture, I want to share one last short report with you, because unlike the other reports, which made me, and maybe some of you, extremely sad, this one made me extremely happy. It's a story of a 
second chance in life, which came from one family story in Syria, a family that I'd met many times over a period of six months, because we followed this family as part of our documentary, The Children of Syria. And then we lost touch for a few years, until one day, all of a sudden, we met in a very pretty park in the city of Toronto. This is my room. Oh, your own bedroom now. Wow, yeah. butterflies. <laughs> Beautiful. Did you do all this? Yeah. Yeah, my drawing book. Uh, I was like excited because I will go to a new country and then I will see my new life in there. Oh, what does that say? Uh, the happy girl. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you're drawing now. When we go to Kafar Kafar you had some bad dreams in Damascus. Now, are they gone? I don't have now. Every night, I see like tomorrow I will go play. Tomorrow I have school. Tomorrow everything. Like, I forget the, the nightmares and, and now everything is happy now. We're going in Syria, we doesn't play basketball and football and baseball. And here we all can swim and we can now uh, play everything together. I see my future like everything is happy. I will live here in Canada. Now Canada is my country and home. All of us would like every story to have a happy ending. They're the kind of stories we read as children or are read to. But sadly, even a story like this doesn't end like fairy tales do in happy endings because Dodd and the rest of the Saba family still can't leave behind the trauma of the extreme environment that is Syria. They're not alone in that. Last week, the charity Save the Children released a report which was based on their most extensive research that 
Children who live in extreme environments suffer the kind of trauma and stress so new, so profound, that there's a new word for it. They call it toxic stress. And they describe it as staggering levels of trauma and distress among children, which if not addressed could cause permanent and irreversible damage. And for every child, and it's not just children in Syria, there's children in many parts of the world, including perhaps here in Britain, who live in extreme, extreme circumstance, not like this, of course. It's very personal for each child. It's their life. But writ large, it is the story of the future of a society, of a country, and in the world in which we live, in which it is almost impossible to contain the effects of an extreme environment, it is a story about the future of our world. Before I end, I would be remiss without acknowledging the kind of questions that I'm always asked. Why do you go to those places? Aren't you scared? Isn't it awful? I always say that the storyteller matters far less than the story. We're not the story. But suffice it to say that, yes, sometimes it's risky. Yes, sometimes we have to take caution. Sometimes we see things we wish we hadn't seen. And sometimes we have to ask questions we wish we didn't have to ask. But when I'm asked those questions, an image, I see an image in my mind's eye and it gives me half a smile. And I think about how when my colleagues and I bravely go to Syria, bravely cross this, from Syria, cross the Lebanese border and stop at the customs offices, the immigration officials. And I look who's standing next to me in the queues. What do we see? Syrian families. Little girls with puffy pink jackets, Hello Kitty backpacks, little Syrian boys with their t-shirts emblazoned with the number of their favorite football hero. They're the center. The center in the extreme environment that is Syria's war. Family, food, home, happiness, school, security. It's the center of all our lives. And for anyone, anyone who lives in an extreme environment, that is all they want, to return to the center. For all of them, it is truly a struggle for life the very struggle for existence that Charles Darwin spoke about so wisely, so eloquently, so long ago. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much indeed. The experiences of those who bring the news from distant, dangerous and extreme situations into our homes on a nightly basis are really hard to comprehend. In today's interconnected world, we've come to expect that we can watch what is happening worldwide, wherever it is, on an almost real-time basis. And sadly, as a result, we can become desensitized to images of human suffering. In centuries past, the news took much longer to arrive, but there was still a strong desire to hear the headlines of what was happening. But, Lise, we're very grateful to you and, and your colleagues for everything you do to show and explain complex problems, putting the immediate situation into the generally and frequently complex, longer-term and historic context. Lise, you are notable for reporting facts and issues whilst ensuring that we appreciate the impacts on the people affected and we don't become callous or perhaps not too callous. Now, before we end, we have the end of the, the last lecture here, at least two steps. We have this year's Extremes series and as has become traditional at this point, I can announce next year's uh, 2018 lecture series, the speakers, there's no poster, there's a list. In fact, it follows on with migration, many aspects of migration, from law, refugees, disease, animals, migration of scientists, and so on. So we hope to see many of you, all of you, back uh, next year we have the third name down there is Filippo Grandi, who I saw was in, at least in your, in your first video from the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. So, you will read that for a while, uh, but please join me in thanking Lise for her insight and for her contributions to informing us of what takes place in distant, distant lands and bringing it right to us, and especially for ensuring that we appreciate the gravity of the, the positions that all those affected are in. So thank you very much for touching our hearts and reminding us that whatever difficulties we think we are experiencing here, they certainly are not extreme. Thank you. Thank you.